Hey peoples, it's Shane here. Uh, this is just a quick heads up. Uh, this podcast has been edited a little and we'll cut some bits out, just some bits of uh, it that contain some of my story that is a little bit too personal to chuck out there on the interwebs. Um, but hopefully we've cobbled to get together in a way that um, still makes some kind of sense. Um, also, I'm aware looking back at this Sunday that... Um, Due to the background, my background and the background of others in the community, it may appear to critique a particular style of church, and that's not really the point of this podcast um, or that message. Um, every church, including and especially ours, has its own baggage and in some ways reflects Mitzrayim more than it does Manuha, and we're very aware we're just as prone to this as anyone, and no church is exempt from letting insecurity and fear and greed or pride drive its practice and as leaders we're particularly culpable so um i hope that this inadequate attempt to describe some of the thinking behind our practice functions more as a reflection on how we're trying to learn from our past rather than taking cheap shots at um the current approach of others after all if we can't critique and learn from our past it's pretty difficult to make a healthier future so i hope it's received in that spirit rather than us kind of just taking pot shots at others um also there's a bit in there where my son Hemi um makes some noise and i tell him to be quiet just a heads up it's a joke um listening back it sounds terrible uh but i can't be bothered editing it out so um he's six months old for those of you who don't know him so he's allowed to make as much noise as he wants and he's definitely the boss of me so um yeah anyway i hope this week is treating you kindly and that this helps you understand our community in some small way big love as always so <laughs> we've tried at the start of each um, week during the series to kind of give a summary of uh, what the series is about. And it's getting harder and harder as the series goes on because you kind of accumulate, it's like a little snowball, you accumulate more and more things. So um, we aren't going to try, try and do that today other than the little bit that I did at the start um, but as we talk, if you haven't been here before, um, hopefully it'll still make some kind of sense. We're entering into a, like um, the second part of the series now. So the first part was like lots of frameworks and um, digging into scripture and um, talking about a whole lot of kind of abstract ideas and um, trying to um, make them fit into our life. But this second part of the series is very much going to be talking about how we live out um, very practically, as practically as possible, how we live out um, the ideas that we talked about in the first half of the series. What does it look like to live a life of manuha? What does it look like to live a life with a rhythm of trust and with a um, trusting in the world that there is enough for everybody? Um, what does it look like to live in a world where we've been invited to have limitations on our lives rather than um, constantly striving for more um, at the cost of our own, own bodies, at the cost of our communities, at the cost of our relationships, at the cost of the earth? Um, what does it look like to live lives um, of abundance, but also lives where we can say enough, um, lives of gratitude? And so Rod had this really good idea. Rod isn't here today. He's away on holiday. He had this great idea. He said, um, oh, it'd be really good, you know, if at some stage during the series we talked about how we do this in our approach to um, working for a church. Uh, maybe you could do that on Sunday. So thanks, Rod. Um, <laughs> I get I get to talk about us. Isn't that lovely? Um we try not to talk about ourselves too much kind of as pastory people because um, 
we're very aware of the great danger that um, many of us have grown up in churches where people think that pastors are very important and um, that the work we do is more important than other people's. And that's stupid. It's not. Um, it matters, but it definitely doesn't matter more than plumbing. And if you've ever lived without plumbing, um, you'll, definitely, you'll definitely agree with me. Um, and so while we take this job very seriously, um, excuse me, that's actually enough of that crap. Thank you very much. I raised you better than that, and we talked about this before the service. Um, that's my child, not someone else's. So I only say those things in hushed tones when no one else is looking to other people's children. Um, yeah, anyway, so today, sorry, so I'm apologizing in advance for why we're talking about us today. Um, it's not because we think that we're particularly important, but um, it is because um, we think that it's important that we sort of give an example about how these abstract ideas and what can seem like, oh, nice concepts, um, can actually be built practically into people's lives. So I'm going to start with this. Um, over the years, I've had numerous warnings from um, people who used to be pastors um, to not do this job. And I agree with them. People who for many years of doing this kind of thing pulled me aside um, and talk about how it destroyed your, their lives. Don't let it eat your life. You'll come out the other side exhausted, broke, bitter, and wonder why you gave so much to it. We used to think it was the only thing that mattered. Now that we're out, <laughs> we wonder whether it mattered at all. It's a bit dark, <laughs> but it's pretty honest. I've had that conversation a lot of times, um, never by someone who's currently a pastor because there's too much at stake, but definitely by people who used to be pastors. I've heard too many times heartbreaking stories from people who work for churches, from pastors and from people who worked for them. I gave it all. I sacrificed my family, and I shouldn't have. There was no end to the work. I lost the passion that made me want to do it in the first place. And, and amongst it all, there was no more prayer, no, no time for prayer or connection. It became some kind of machine. My world shrank to the, to the bubble of church, and I had no space or no awareness of anything outside of it. I came to build community. I left a small-time CEO with no friends. And for a while, for quite a while, even up until right now, I genuinely wondered whether it was only sadists, martyrs, or narcissists that wanted to lead in churches. People who love abuse, um, people who feel like they have to give more of themselves than they actually have, or people who just so love the power that can come with this job um, that they're willing to sacrifice everything else for it. And while often I think that's actually true, I've been lucky enough to encounter good people and enough good people who do this work to believe otherwise. But it's intriguing when we look at it. Um, if we pull up the Mitzrayim and the Nuha slides that we've been using, um, kind of hyperbolic counterpoints, um, it intrigued me looking at this and thinking about church life, how often church life in um, places that I've been or seen looks a lot more like Mitzrayim than it does like Manuha. Um, achievement becomes master. 
Dependence and vulnerability are a weakness, a stance of restless discontent, that what we produce as a community defines us, that rest or being still or silence are all anxiety-inducing things. Expansion at all costs. The work is endless. Now, funnily enough, we created this before talking about churches, so this isn't just a description of churches. It just happens to coincide quite well. Um, There are very few communities um, that I've seen around the place that look like they have their goal to be deeply human, where dependence and vulnerability are a gift. They manage to sit in a stance. They sit in a stance? They can't do that. Um, That's the mystery. It's like the Trinity. To sit in a stance of gratitude. Now, I want you to go home and practice that. Um, To acknowledge God as the source of life. We'll talk about this one a little bit later on. It sounds really easy, but it's really, really hard. Um, Where rest is life-giving and where we can say, I have enough and I've done enough. What does it look like to be part of a community that can say, we have enough and we've done enough? Especially in the middle of a financial crisis here, <laughs> where we actually we don't have enough, and I might be taking a redundancy package thing. Um, <laughs> what does it look like to live in a place where we trust God as the source of life? How do we not get suckered into the cycle of restless discontent? We've been inspired by the work of Eugene Peterson, um, who is a pastor in the States, and he's been one for quite a long time, um, and he's not a horrible man, (laughs) um, despite being a pastor from the States. And, sorry, we'll probably delete that from the record. Um, (laughs) He wrote a book called The Contemplative Contemplative Pastor um, and coined the phrase, The Unbusy Pastor. And his whole idea is this, is that if we as people, so if this is supposed to be some kind of wellspring of life and amongst the busyness of the world, amongst all the activity that we have to do, if we as a community can't model manuha or rest or Sabbath in the way that we practice, (laughs) how are we supposed to practice that in the rest of our lives? If us as leaders of a community very reluctant ones, can't model rest and manuha if we're con- so anxious and busy going around telling people how to rest and be still. <laughs> it's quite difficult to do with any integrity. So Eugene Peterson's whole idea is that we, as the people of God, need to live by a different economy, not an economy of constantly st- trampling over each other to get to the top, but an economy where we seek to share all that we have with the world around us, where we recognize that we have gifts to give and we give them generously. And if this is like a little microcosm of that, yet we're frantic and overworked and neglecting the things that really matter in life, it doesn't add up. And so he... Um, writes extensively about this idea called the unbusy pastor. He says this about himself. I am busy because I am vain. I want to appear important, significant. What better way than to be busy, 
the incredible hours, the crowded schedule, and the heavy demands of my time as proof to myself and all, to, all who notice that I am important. I guess it's important here that we talk about the important distinction between hard work and busyness. Because you could listen to this and think that what we're effectively promoting is uh, that everyone just kind of like lazes around on what are those like chaise lounges, what are those chair things? Is that what they're called? My French isn't French. Um, <laughs> what's it called? Or a banana lounger, yeah, in a, in a banana hammock. Um, and, you know, getting fed grapes by other people, like that's our, that's our end goal. And it's not, because work is a part of manuha. Work is a part of being invited into rest. Um, it's just fra- work that's framed by rest. Um, we're not promoting laziness. We're resisting mitzraham. When we work out of fear, insecurity, pride, or greed, we commit idolatry. When we, when we work out of fear, insecurity, pride, or greed, we commit idolatry because we're failing to see God as the source of life. We're seeing all that we have as a result of our own strength in our own hand. And we're often overreaching. We're often taking more than we're entitled to. There's, we'll talk about this later when we get to economics, but there's this really long um, strand of tradition within the Old Testament about not moving boundary stones. So, when they arrived in the land in Canaan, they received land. And what I guess they knew would happen is what always happens with property. Is that give it 100 years, a few people end up with all of the property and everyone else ends up with not very much. And so there's this really sacred objects called boundary stones that lay out the boundaries of your land and you are not to move or extend your boundary beyond that. Because to extend your boundary encroaches on somebody else's boundary. To have more property, (laughs) we're in dangerous territory here. (laughs) To have more property than you were given by God is to take property away from someone else. And so possession and work and giving your gift, that's not idolatry. Extending beyond yourself at the cost of another, that definitely is. Hard work is a part of manuha. Giving your gift in a wholehearted way. We, we have a gift to give to the world. And sometimes that's demanding, and sometimes it's difficult, and sometimes it requires Incredibly hard work. But the distinction is between Manuha work and Mitzram work. Unlike busyness, there are limits. There are limits to our work. There are limits to what's healthy. We recognize that doing 90-hour weeks in the long run take away, they might give us more, but they certainly don't help us dig deeper. We have more stuff, we have more activity, we have more success, we have more promotions, we have more of all of these things, but we have less quality of life. We have less deep relationship. We have less peace. 
We have less rhythms that actually help us remain human. Manuha says there's such a thing as too much. Mitzrayam doesn't. Mitzrayam will always push that little bit harder no matter what the cost, 110%. Manuha says, work and work hard. Give your whole life to your gift. Give, give what you have, but don't give in a way that takes away from the sacred in the world. Don't give in a way that takes away from depth and relationship and peace and rest. Don't work in a way that becomes an act of not trusting that if we don't constantly work, we won't have enough. There's a discernment in Manuha between activity that brings life and activity for the sake of more. Manuha is a rhythm of life that seeks deeper rather than just more. How do we build depth, engagement, relationship, and vulnerability into our work life, into our family life, into our relationships? That's the question we're going to be asking over the next few weeks. So we've invited different people to speak about how they do this in their work and in their life and in their economics and their finances and, um, and what, what are the really practical things that they, how they built that in. So we are going to do that a little bit today around kind of how we approach um, church life and pastoring. Um, maybe we could start by looking at the fruit of Mitzram and the lives of the ministers, that, the, the bitter and cynical ministers I talked to, um, talked about before. Um, so I've kind of picked up some common threads, but we might be able to add to them as a community. Um, one of the, this is a rodism. I live by a few rodisms in my life. <laughs> he's, a, he's a wise man. I just steal his stuff. Um, he says um, the classic narrative in church life is resentment. That there's too much to do and not enough help. Too much to do and not enough help. And the classic resentment on the other side of that is that um, there's not enough opportunity to be a part of things. How do we create a community where the f- there's not a few people doing too much who are constantly overextending themselves, who are being praised for the great activity of the church, but internally are becoming increasingly bitter about how much they have to do to make that happen. Another narrative is the neglect of family as the workload overwhelms. Um, we've got quite a few pastors, kids in our church. Um, and many of you have wonderful stories about care, about feeling like your parents were there. And some of you, um, actually lots of them who are no longer here, um, will never touch church with a broom pole because it stole their mum and dad. And it's a horrible narrative. It's horrible that Mitzrayim has taken good people from their families. Um, the isolation of guruism. So in many church spheres, the role of the person who works for the church is to be the guru with all the answers about everything. And the worst thing that can happen is that they begin to believe it. Being the person with all the answers is a pressure that no person should have to bear. Because what it means is that you have to have it all together all the time. 
that he had to create some kind of distance from everybody else to remain on the pedestal. One of the saddest traits about um, pastors that I've observed is very few of them have good friends. It interested me, I remember listening to a bunch of stories from very impressive speakers when I was kind of going through my 20s trying to work out what this life might look like. And one of the things I noticed was that nearly every anecdote was about someone sitting next to them on a plane. If the only real conversation you can have with someone is because they're strapped in next to you, I think you've got a problem. And what I observed about these people, because I got to spend a fair bit of time as a young aspiring driver, is how few real friends they have. And if we are, first and foremost, a community, yet there's people in the community who are, by default of their position, excluded from having real relationships, I think that's incredibly unhealthy. I think the pressure of always being on, of having a thousand relationships an inch deep and none, no deep wells, to always be on, to kind of have to carry the social, set the social thermostat of a community, it's just too much pressure for any one person or even two or three. The worst thing I think that can happen to an answer person is when they begin to believe that they actually do have all the answers for everyone's problems. Rather than there being wisdom in a community. Rather than the role of us is to generate, to create space. To sit with scripture. Sure, to be experts in particular parts of it because we have time to study in ways that other people don't but then to present a meal for us to all feast together, for us to wrestle together, for us to hear what wisdom and application might look like. Other narratives, excellence at every cost, even when the workload crushes others. That how this place appears to function is more important than how it actually functions. I think it's a dangerous sign of Mitzrayim when having a smooth gathering is more important than having healthy people in a gathering. Um, being institutionalized, being stuck in a church bubble where your entire world is consumed by this place. So you actually begin to think that what happens in here is more important than what happens in people's lives out there. It's not. It's really important. It's really important what happens in here. But not more important than what happens anywhere else. It's sacred. It's special and it's good. And your lives, our everyday lives, our families, our workplaces are sacred and special and good. And hopefully this is a well that we can draw from of nourishment and life and then take that life and live out of that as we go about our everyday lives. But when you spend so much time in this place that you forget what else is going on in the world, I think it's a really dangerous place to live. Um, <laughs> when another narrative is um, <laughs> a disdain for those less important, 
when the privilege of this role of being a person who gets to facilitate community mistakenly makes you believe that you're more important than anyone else in a community, that's a really dangerous place to live in. Um, because you no longer see it. You no longer see how easily the way you practice dehumanizes others. Obviously. That, that as well, saying yes but feeling angry about it. Mm. Any more waggling, waggling hands? It's like a group therapy session. <laughs> we can bleep swear words, it's fine. Yeah, the um, the excellence things. Um, it's a lot, a lot of churches get caught up on that, and it's sort of very tempting. But it's, I, I don't know who it's actually impressing. Um, that said, I mean, yeah, mega churches have lots of people going through. So, um, <clears throat> I hadn't realised in the scripture that we we read at the start that the the vases were um, cer- were used for um, ceremonial cleaning. I, I hadn't realised the, the symbology of Jesus replacing that with wine and yeah, here I am, I'm enough. Um, and yeah, of course the irony of that in modern church where Jesus is enough. Um, not that you're talking about it here, but yeah, it's um, and yeah, I, I myself have, have, have led worship and yeah, Jesus is enough, Jesus is enough, now do this. And it's so easy to fall into ritual. For sure. Before Sarah and I found this church, we checked out a few others, um, and that one of them, you know, they have the newcomer thing, and they give you details and everything, and and uh, it was probably about seven months later that we got a phone call asking how we were, and we'd been here for about five months, and it just, it made me feel like, um, uh, it's not, no, 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 <laughs> um, it made me feel, I don't know if, you, if you've ever had dealings with a real estate agent to the extent that they get any contact detail from you. You will know from then on when the real estate market is quiet because as soon as the real estate market is quiet, you will get a phone call every month asking if you have a property you want to sell or if you're looking to buy or something. And it just made me feel so much like that, like uh, ah, like you don't matter until it's quiet and all of a sudden they're scraping the bottom of the barrel looking for someone they can get in there. That, that's just totally reconciling. Yeah, you th- but you think about those, those... Yeah, I mean, you think about systems... Um, yeah, I mean, what does it look like to try and care and try and welcome and try and, you know, like, and that may well be a community that's doing everything they can, you know, like, like, yeah, like, it's, yeah, the hard, the hard thing is that, yeah, it, that those systems come from really good places, um, but how do you work genuineness into, you know, this, this, these are the wrestles, they're not easy answers, how do you work genuine welcome into systems and how do you create you know like if you need systems how do you do them in a way that uh sustainable for people and that are actually effective and yeah it's complex Um, i remember we talked about um different styles of relating to god like contemplative happy clappy you know all those styles and um i grew up in pentecostal churches as well and um quite a contemplative person and i found it being in the worship team up the front in front of you know a lot of people in that kind of service you always have to be on you always have to be clapping and up and upbeat and 
I found that really, really difficult. I felt like I actually had to stop being myself and it wore me down so much. After a while, I was just completely like, I didn't even know who I was anymore because, you know, I had to like dance around and it just was not me at all. <laughs> I didn't relate to it, you know, but I was serving God out of goodness, I felt was what God wanted me to do. And um, I had a friend who led a dance team and they won awards nationally and stuff at the church, but... She was so burnt out and sick that she ended up, like, she had bloodshot eyes because burst all the blood vessels in her eyes from stress and, like, vomiting and just, like, I've never seen someone so stressed. Like, she ended up going, living on a farm and never came back and, like, no one knew what happened to her. And, like, the pastor said, you know, like, that it was her fault, like, kind of said, like, blamed it on her, whereas they'd actually set up a culture where it was like that, you know, and I didn't even, I had to find time to even go and, like, sit down and read my Bible and just have time with God again, learn how to connect with God because I felt like I wasn't even connecting through any of it anymore and it's just yeah <laughs> I remember being in choir you know when they have those conferences sorry I have so much to say but like bringing conferences and like stepping out of the choir in the middle of this massive conference and just walking out and going and like crying because I was just so tired of doing like five services in a row and like jumping up and down and being all happy and just like it's exhausting being happy is exhausting yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah very valid. I, I don't want to end up in a mega church bashing, bashing session. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not, I know that's not what you're doing, but like just the balance of our community can tip that way. Um, and and, and these, these issues are not mega church issues, they're people issues. Um, the way we hold power, the way spiritual authority is used. Is just as dangerous in a small space as it is in a large, and sometimes even more so. Um, so this is not having a go at one particular style of church, even though quite a few of us come from a particular style of church. Um, the, these these are all trying trying to outwork the gospel of equality, of open table, of um, a, a, co- a congregation of ministers. In any kind of structure, is really difficult. Um, and is prone to Mitzrayim. I was talking to a friend the other day, and we're, he isn't from church life. Um, and we were just talking about my job and stuff, and he's like, yeah, so, you know, so the church is like a business. I'm like, no, no, it's not like a business. He's like, no, oh, yeah, but, like, the easiest way of thinking about it is like a business, and then you want to do, and I'm like, no, 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 it's not. He's like, I don't really have any other frameworks to think about it. And 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 But that's, this is the world that we live in. Like, everything is reduced to, Economics, everything's reduced to a business model. To try and live an alternate script is really, really difficult because the thing that we have at hand is that structure. To try and imagine outside of it, and this is kind of what Brueggemann, who we've referenced a lot during the series, talks about. Trying to reference outside of the to- what he calls the totality, trying to imagine a different way of life than the default option we absorb. It's really, really difficult, and that's what we're trying to do. Anyway, we're going we're gonna to kick on. Um, when Mitzrayim kicks in, practices of, practices of depth wither. Learning to say enough as a community opens us to a different kind of more. Learning to say enough makes room for unproductive activity like prayer and reflection and kindness. Learning to say enough makes space for rich, slow relationships. And that's a really, we've talked about this before, but it's a really tough one in a community like ours where there's lots of new people coming in and then lots of 
fragile people here, and then lots of people moving on because it's Fitzroy North and it's a transient kind of suburb, um, to try and balance connecting with people and making people feel welcome in a sustainable way while maintaining relationships and while feeling at home where you are. Like it's a constant wrestle for our community that we need to keep engaging with. Um, Learning to say enough makes space for reflection and education. For comfort with good enough, which is an exercise of trust and humility. Um, Perspective on the importance of our work together. And engaging with energizing activity such as nature and beauty and wonder and joy. So how do we build, and this is mostly talking about Rod and I as as we're reflecting, how do we build Manuha into our practice as um, people who work for a church? Um, So we try and engage in practices of deeper. We try and not be so busy that we don't have time for prayer, for sitting still, reflecting, for having in-depth conversation with people. We try and not greet so many people that we are totally shot and burned out. And when it comes to actually having a real conversation with someone, we don't have any energy for it. We try and practice vulnerability and be real humans, to not think of ourselves as people who have to put on a good mask, but as people who are real people who have needs and vulnerabilities and weaknesses and get really grumpy sometimes and um, aren't very nice. And um, who actually suffer from the same insecurities as the rest of us, who sometimes the idea of talking on Sundays is, while we try not to make it complex, it's just totally overwhelming thinking about the needs in our community and how people engage and relate and that some people need intellectualism and some people despise it and then some people need um, joy um, and other people are sickened by the saccharine hope of the gospel. (laughs) We all somehow need scripture, but our relationship to it is complex and fraught. Um, To not let that anxiety overwhelm us where we feel like we have to deliver the perfect meal is really difficult. Um. We try and refuse to become gurus. I, many of you probably don't know this, but I can actually preach <laughs> like real sermons. <laughs> like, you, you know, ones where people go, wow, and like write things down and say, that's it, um, and think they're really profound. Like I have a lifetime of preaching real sermons. Um, <laughs> That'll change your life. Amen. I'm preaching better than you're responding. That's an actual catchphrase. I I can actually I can actually talk in a way that will convince you of things. But to me, and again it's context. There's probably a place for that. I just don't think that this is. That kind of confidence and that kind of conviction and that kind of convincing is useful, but it also encroaches on something. It's very hard to say no to. It's very hard to wrestle with yourself. And it shuts down thinking and engagement and application more than it opens it up. 
I have sat next to people time and time again in conferences where two people have said exactly the opposite thing just as confidently and they've written them down underneath each other and put very good next to both of them. And they're completely conflicting bits of information. We really want to create a space where our personalities don't dominate the space in a way that makes no room for anyone else and no room for discussion, no room for disagreement and no, good, no room for questioning. That's why we talk the way that we do. We can make things sound better and more convincing. But it risks space for others, and we see this as a community. We're already insecure enough about the fact that we talk too much. So we try and do so in a way that at least invites other people in. And that's a practice of deeper rather than more. We remember that we're a body, that Rod and I are just two people who are a part of something, a community of equals. Um, we don't see it as our job to cast a vision for everyone else to live up to. We have hopes for our community. We lead where we need to. We can nudge in certain directions, but we hope that we do so in a way that is achievable and realistic and that acknowledges where our community is at and is in touch with it and that allows energy from the ground up. So we're not going to start 30 new projects and get, then get annoyed that no one's doing them. We're going to wait, and see, wait until there's energy within our community and see what comes up from within our community. We try and lead in a way that remembers that we are a body, that we're all ministers, that we all have something to give, but we're not going to extend ourselves in a way that we get caught in a cycle of Mitzrayim as a church trying to live up to um, a perception of what we should be. We're trying to listen very, very carefully about what our, what is the gift of this community to this neighborhood and to each other and to the other churches around. What is our place? Last one, we try and remember that it's God's church, not ours. That this, if I ever think that this community comes down to me and my personality and my work, then I've, we've set things up in a way that doesn't need you guys, and that's really silly. Um, if we ever think that what we have comes from our own strength and ability rather than acknowledging God as the source of life in this place, um, then we'll work too hard because it all comes down to us. We have to trust that we can achieve what God has called us to achieve as a community within the rhythm of life that he has set for us. And if we extend ourselves in a way that neglects our family, that neglects our personal health, that abuses our congregation, then that's not trust, that's idolatry. We have to trust that God provides for this community and that we have to do what's sustainable together. Again, we're in a precarious financial situation at the moment. We don't have enough regular income to do what we're doing right now. Um, the reality is oh, I might need to take redundancy in a couple of months. And the temptation in that space is to push harder and to make things brighter and to do more and overextend ourselves. But that pattern is dangerous if we can't sustain ourselves healthily as a community, it's better for this community to find a new way of being or to say that was a great season, but let's go find something new. I would rather do that. And I really hope it doesn't come to that, but I would rather do that than my son one day go, yeah, my dad was a pastor. 
What an a-hole. So we need to find a way of doing this sustainably. And I, I really hope and believe that we can do that. So we take time as staff to read and to educate ourselves and to pray and to reflect. And they don't get that much. It doesn't feel like you're getting much done when you've got emails waiting. And emails still need to happen. <laughs> but we believe in the long run that it makes us deeper, richer people and a deeper, richer community to engage with those things. So those are some practical ways that we try and build manuha and boundaries into what we do as um, people who work for our community. What we're going to be doing over the next bunch of weeks is to get a whole heap of different people to talk about their lives and their context and how they do that. So I will greatly look forward to hearing uh, other people um, about this. Thank you.